Welcome to Muse Views, the podcast for the Muse community about the Muse community. Muse is a nonprofit education networking group for users of the Meditech electronic health record system. Here on our podcast, we chat with healthcare IT folks about ideas, opportunities, strategies, and solutions to improve work life experiences and share views you can use. Welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, TJ Temple, and I would like to thank you for joining us today. Today, we have the pleasure of having our first Canadian guest on the podcast. Sometimes we forget Muse is an international organization, and I'm happy to welcome our first international guest. Corey Tillier is a familiar name in the Muse community, as she has been very active in the organization as a content provider, community member, and even served on the board as a chair two times during her tenure on the Muse board. Corey, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you for having me. For those listeners that may not be as familiar with you, tell us about how you got your start in healthcare and how you ended up in IT. I actually went to Simon Fraser University here in British Columbia, Canada to do a mathematics and computer science degree back in the late 80s. I had decided at that time that even though I loved mathematics and computer science deeply, that it just wasn't feeling right for me when I was a 19-year-old female in an (laughs) all-male Room. So what I did was I took a gap year and ended up in nursing school at Vancouver General Hospital here in BC and got my diploma in nursing. I then started my family while I was nursing. I got my degree from the University of Victoria in nursing, Bachelor of Science in nursing, and then went and I got a master's degree in healthcare leadership. But all the while I was doing that, I never lost my interest in mathematics and computer science. So when the opportunity came up in the mid-90s around computers and healthcare, I jumped right on board and was there at the beginning. One of the very first projects we did that I'm really proud of was the Meditech NUR project back in the mid-90s. And we went full-scale Meditech NUR at one of our small community hospitals. We went right from assessments that drove the care plan. Uh, documentations, including we used GRASP and PRN for workload as a back end to the documentation. So one of the very, very early fully capable NUR and assessment implementations. So that was kind of my beginning in health informatics was back in the mid 90s. And NUR was the first project I worked on. It was really fun. Yeah, that sounds exciting. I'm sure it's changed a lot since then. We see a lot of informatics now and a lot of nurses in the IT space, but Sounds like you were almost a groundbreaker in that area, which is pretty cool. Yeah, it was very cool. And yeah, actually, when we started as a group of five of us, at that time, we were an organization called Simon Fraser with four hospitals. And then in healthcare in BC is is public, as, as you know. So we actually grew from the ministry of made a change. So we went from four hospitals to 12. And when we did that, we went to client server. And that was the next big project I actually did for Fraser Health was the move off of Magic from the four hospitals and we moved to client server. We did that in the early 2000s and it it took us a while to get 12 hospitals onto one system. And so it was interesting. I've presented at Muse many times about that project itself, but again, a really cool project that we were able to do with Meditech as our base for acute care and it served us very well. Yeah, that's pretty amazing. I can't imagine bringing 12 hospitals, bringing one hospital or sometimes one department onto a platform is, a, is quite a chore. So 12 hospitals, I can imagine, is a, <laughs> a quite, quite an adventure. We didn't do it in a year. <laughs> it took us <laughs> <No>. a while. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine. Yeah. So tell us a little bit now about how your role has changed at Fraser and, and what you've been working on, uh, especially during this uh, pandemic. 
So last November, I actually retired, but prior to that, I was in semi-retirement and Fraser Health contacted me when the vaccines, the COVID-19 vaccines were ready and asked if I would run one of the mass immunization clinics here in BC. And what was really cool for me was the fact that I was given the clinic in Burnaby, BC. Burnaby is where I was born. It's where I grew up and it's where my mom still lives. So this opportunity in my semi-retirement career to go back to the place where I grew up and serve that community was really, really quite an honor for me. So I managed a clinic called Christine Sinclair. So Christine Sinclair is one of the lead soccer players on the Canadian women's Olympic team. And it actually, when I started the clinic there, it was called the 40th Centre. But when the Canadian women won the gold last summer at the Olympics, the name was changed to Christine Sinclair Clinic. So a lot of people still remember it as 40s, but it was renamed Christine Sinclair. So at the Christine Sinclair Clinic, I was given an empty space. I had a partner manager in crime because it was quite a large clinic that we were running. It was, I believe, the third largest clinic in BC as far as number of immunizations per day. And this was not an area that I had a lot of experience in vaccines. And there is a lot around vaccine handling and management and Here, every drop of vaccine had to be uh, accounted for. So a lot of mathematics. And in the early days, it was very paper-based. But we were given this empty space at Christine Sinclair that we had to, within 48 hours, ramp up into a fully functioning immunization clinic, including flow of vaccine and flow of clients, flow of appointments, everything, having staffing lined up. It was quite something. The first three weeks that we worked there, my partner manager and I worked 16 hour days, six days a week for three weeks. I I was so exhausted, but my family kind of rallied around and kind of helped me as far as managing my groceries in my home, home and my dog, but we got it done. So I'm so proud of what we were able to do there. The very first day we opened, we did 1400 immunizations which may not sound like a lot, but it was in my world, it felt like a lot. By the time we ramped up, we were doing 2,600 immunizations a day. And by the time in the five months we were open, we managed to do 225,000 immunizations, which just, it slowly just added up, which uh, was great. And I'll just, I will throw a figure out there to date. I think as of yesterday, Fraser Health has completed over 4 million immunizations. in our geographic region, which is the 12 hospital kind of community area. So super proud of our overall team and what we've been able to do in Fraser Health as far as that. And I don't take any ownership of that. That's just a stat. I'm just a very, very small cog in that wheel. What was really interesting about the COVID clinic is at the very beginning a year ago, and this is just amazing how quickly we can ramp up IT these days. When we started, we were every single person had a piece of paper that we accounted the appointment for. So their booking was on paper. We logged their appointment on paper, what they got, the lot number, their name, you know, their personal health number, all of that was logged. The whole entire appointment was logged on paper. At the end of the day, and this is why the days were, some of them were very long. I'd be up till two in the morning with, you know, a little rubber finger on (laughs) and I was counting every single one. So if we did 1200 appointments, I had to have 1200 pieces of paper and I needed to log that against the logbook in our reconstitution area to ensure that every single syringe that was created was accounted for. 
at the end of the day, because you get, say if it was a Pfizer day, you get seven doses of Pfizer out of a vial. If we ended and we still had five syringes left, we had to make phone calls to get people in to get those five syringes used at the end of the day within the time frame. So again, like it was just all a lot of phone calls and paper at the beginning, a lot of Excel spreadsheets. We managed to get the appointments on something called comms forms. So we at least had the appointments, but again, a lot of downloading to paper and, and following that. But within a month of opening, we were on a fully integrated system by a company called Salesforce. And within BC, we called it IMSBC, Immunized BC. And by the end of that month, the people within the population of British Columbia would get a call out or a text telling them that it was their time to book their appointment. They could then book their appointment online with IMSBC. That appointment, and according to whatever clinic they wanted and whatever time they wanted, availability, of course. And then we would get that on our end through IMSBC. We could then download into Excel and we were able to actually analyze the appointments. And the reason why we needed to do that was if you had a youth come in, there was only certain healthcare providers that could actually immunize youth. And there was extra credentials that are required to immunize youth because of something called mature minor consent. I don't know if you have that in the U.S., but it's something we have in Canada. It's a 12 to 18 year old can consent to their own immunization without their parents there. But there are some steps we have to do around that. And it has to be the appropriate professional that does the mature minor consent. So we could kind of see what we had coming in through that. And then as we got along as well is whether people had Pfizer for their first dose or whether they had Moderna for their first dose, because we tried to match them up where we could. There wasn't a lot of AstraZeneca in, in Canada. It was not something we really grabbed a hold of. Basically, Moderna and Pfizer are our go-to, and then the pediatric Pfizer as well. Interesting. So, yeah, so we were able to really analyze what was coming in the next day, whether it was Pfizer, Moderna, whether we had youth, kind of what age groups we had going on. The other thing that we really looked for were teenage boys. Lots of teenage boys tend to faint. And so we, you know, we were able to kind of prepare that if, if we had, it's called a vasovagal reaction. So we were able to kind of plan if we had teenage boys coming in and whether we'd be looking at something like that. We're able to now look back at what we did and all those 1200 papers, 16, 2600 papers a day that we were doing in the first month, all of that was inputted into M. So we had the historical information as well. So it's been such a really interesting experience for me to marry back and be more on the direct clinical line, but still getting to use systems to support healthcare. Yeah, that's that's really cool. And especially, you know, getting to go to your hometown sometimes, and especially in IT, we feel separated from the work that we're doing. We're making an impact on patients' lives, but to actually go back to your hometown and probably see friends and neighbors that you're, you know, getting vaccinated. What a revamp to your career there. That's really neat. Yeah, because my own family always came to my clinic. So even my kids... Um, even though we don't live specifically in Burnaby, my whole family was booking into my clinic, which was really nice. And I got immunized at my own clinic as well. It's been really fun to be able to go back and serve my community. Yeah, that's cool. And just in ballpark numbers, what kind of staffing? I mean, did you have like, you know, hundreds of nurses just sitting at stations and Well, that's the interesting thing. We had work? more than nurses. So in the States, we have licensed practical nurses and then we had RNs. We even had physicians come forward that wanted to do the work firefighters, ambulance, although ambulance, um, some of the front line we had to be very careful with because 
we didn't want to take too many people from the front line to do immunizations and not have them on the front line, you know, supporting the people that were getting sick with COVID. So we had to be very careful with that, but we were able to call in. Um, we had retired nurses that came back and they, we had a special licensure so that they could come back and work as unlicensed nurses to do immunizations. Staffing really dependent on the site, but generally on an eight-hour shift, what we could plan for was about 100 immunizations on an eight-hour shift per clinician or immunizer is what we call them because some were a bit slower, some were a bit faster. That's kind of for, for an adult, right, that's ready to go. If it's somebody that's has, you know, a little bit vaccine hesitant, that appointment's going to take a little bit longer. Kids obviously take quite a bit longer, um, depending on how they're feeling about, there's a lot of needle phobia with youth. So yeah, that'll take a bit longer to deal with. But on average, most immunizers can do about 100 a day, 100 a eight hour shift. So the using of Salesforce to track everything, you know, eventually there after your first month, was that adopted by multiple Canadian entities or is that just a Fraser thing or? Did the government adopt that? or It wasn't a thing. Okay. It was the province of BC that rolled that out. So that was right across the province. So people from, if they were in Kelowna and needed, you know, needed the vaccine and happened to be in Vancouver and there was appointment, they could do that like anywhere within BC. I'm not sure what the other provinces did, to be honest. I've been too head down in our area, but I'm, the other provinces, I do believe rolled out very similar systems. And I can't say whether they use Salesforce or not, but certainly it has been very effective here. So fast forward. So now we're here. What are you seeing COVID-wise in BC? You know, are things ramping down? Or you mentioned earlier that you're still having to show vaccination to get into restaurants and public places, which you've obviously made a big dent in allowing people to do that. But talk about kind of where, where it's at now and what you're seeing. There's kind of two parts. When Christine Sinclair closed last year, I went into supporting another clinic in Burnaby that was doing testing and immunizations. And that's been a very interesting experience because we were outside in a parking lot at an institute called British Columbia Institute of Technology gave us part of their parking lot. That clinic is still there. I'm still supporting it. So it's like it was drive-through testing and drive-through immunizations, which was a little bit different than being inside especially during the month of November, which we had some major flooding down here. So we're working out in the rain. There was some pretty interesting weather that we were working through. What does it look like now? We've just ramped down several of our immunization clinics. So when the booster shots came along, we ramped clinics back up again. And now we're ramping them back down again, going back down. So I think in the one catchment area that I work in, we had eight clinics running and we're right now going down to four. The other thing that's going to make a big dent for us in kind of getting to the new normal, which is what we're trying to do, is we've now got the immunizations can be done in local pharmacies. So we're trying to get the vaccine out. We're trying to get to the new normal. So like my son actually um, just last week got his booster shot at the local pharmacy here. And then the other thing that's happening in BC is every person in BC is going to get rapid access testing kits. So right now it's anyone over 70 can get their kit and within the kit, there's five rapid access tests and all the school-aged kids have gotten their rapid access tests. So the testing is going to start going downward as far as people needing to come to a clinic and get their PCR test because they're going to be able to do that at home. Great. That's a huge benefit for sure. What about masking? Is Canada still locked down with masking protocols or I noticed the CDC has kind of relaxed some of that. I don't know actually if you guys even care about the CDC or or are governed by them or not, but. 
<laughs> oh yeah, no, we care about the CDC. We absolutely do. Yeah, so every province is running that separately because healthcare is a provincial entity. So every province is a little bit different. I know, I believe Ontario and Alberta have already opened up as far as their masking goes. In BC, it's probably going to get lifted any day, to be honest. But right now, if I go to the grocery store, I wear a mask. If I go to a restaurant, you wear a mask till you sat at your seat and then you can take your mask off. So it's starting to loosen. And I think we're starting to finally get to that endemic uh, stage of the new normal for us. Yeah. Is the vaccination um, application and, and proof of vaccination to get into restaurants, is that tied to the masking or are those two separate kind of regulations? They're two separate entities, but um, both are required at the moment. Okay. You know what? To be honest, TJ, like some days it changes hourly, um, the rules. My belief at this moment in time is that mass and, and the vaccine card is still required. <laughs> right. Okay. So shifting gears just a little bit here, it seems like, you know, Fraser being such a large organization, you know, and having such a provincial impact. I read an interesting article the other day was talking about how, and perhaps this is just in the United States, but I assume it's happening in Canada as well, is patients are not seeking care because of, you know, COVID restrictions and fear of COVID and, and those sort of things. And they said the next kind of wave in healthcare is going to be undiagnosed and late stage cancers that weren't caught because people missed their screening appointments, their colonoscopies, their mammograms, et cetera. You know, I wondered if with Fraser or a, a provincial system like that, or a more, a more government-based healthcare system, you guys have the ability to monitor that and remind folks that, Hey, it's time to get this and it's clear to come in and, and, that's kind of a, a rambling question there, but first of all, I guess, are you seeing those those same effects? Or is your organization seeing those? And two, do you guys have a better way to handle those sort of things than we do here in the States? So the Cancer Agency of BC is a provincial entity, but it's funny you mentioned that because I got a letter, this you know, <laughs> a reminder letter. In the middle of COVID, I was supposed to go for my mammogram and I didn't go. <laughs> so that might be a little TMI, but but it's true. And, but I didn't go comfortable. <laughs> That proves the um, point. <laughs> I just recently got a reminder letter saying, hey, you, you didn't get this done last year. And actually, that was what I was going to do right after this podcast was phone and book it because I'm feeling at the point now where I'm comfortable to go do it. But yeah, there is a provincial entity, BC Cancer Agency, that does send out all the screen, screening for the colonoscopies and the mammograms and everything else that to make sure that we're staying on top of the screening that needs to happen. And and I'm, I agree. I, you know, I'm a prime example. People... If you don't feel you needed it, then why put yourself at risk, right? So, so yeah, I could see that. I can completely see that happening. The other thing I know Fraser Health is looking at specifically is burnout in healthcare and the care of our healthcare providers. So we are working right now. So this is my other job with Fraser Health is I work as a client partner, occupational health nurse. And one of the things that we are right now looking at is how we can build resilience in healthcare and really take care of the mental health and the stress levels of our healthcare providers and support them as we do the transition into the endemic stage of the pandemic and get them healthy again, because they have been a very stressed group of citizens our healthcare providers. And it's now we, we need to start focusing on taking care of them. So we're just working through right now what that's going to look like, some of the early project stages. And again, I'm just a very small cog and a very big wheel on that. But I'm looking forward to supporting our healthcare workers and getting them back to where they were in their pre-pandemic mental health stage. Yeah, what an important initiative that is. I mean, we're seeing that in the States as well, obviously. We may have a little more 
people job jumping and retirement and the great resignation than you do just because of the nature of healthcare in the States. But definitely that that's a very important initiative and very cool that your yeah. organization's Yeah, I'm really proud of Fraser Health. They've made resilience a key focus for the next couple of years for the health providers. Fraser Health has 38,000 employees. Yeah. <laughs> wow. <laughs> that's almost impossible to fathom for a lot of the smaller organizations in the States, for sure. So with your with your long career in healthcare, you know, starting clinically, ended up in IT and doing project management and all these great things you've talked about, what, what do you see kind of looking back, you know, taking a step back, what do you see that the Muse community could pressure vendors or, or associate vendors or whatever to really focus on? Is there a key thing that you're seeing that, that healthcare IT is still kind of missing the boat on or, or could make a bigger impact in doing or just kind of your 5,000 foot view there? There's really kind of three things that I'm thinking of that would really help healthcare in the future. And I think we're on our path to some of these areas, but I think we could be doing more and how much maybe the pandemic has held some things up. And I think some areas of the pandemic has probably pushed. One of the areas I think the pandemic pushed was really that international sharing of information to create the vaccines. I don't think we've ever had that sharing of that kind of information ever in the history of healthcare. I know one of the areas that to me is really kind of taking off that I think is still early and we could do so much more is around the genome project and looking at genetics. I was just talking to a friend yesterday and actually her nephew ended up getting a blood test to see what medications would be best suited for his diagnosis. And they discovered that the medication, because he wasn't getting better, the medication they actually had him on was one of the ones that came back as wouldn't work for him. And so they've looked at the list that will work for him and they're going to get him switched over. So I think looking at pharmacy genetics and other types of genomes is really going to help us in the future. So I think more work can be done there. Robotics, I think, in OR, diagnostics labs, doing microsurgeries, we can do much bigger or smaller microsurgeries now that we couldn't do 10 years ago because of the advents of robotics in healthcare. And then the other one I was thinking about is artificial intelligence. I mean, again, we've done a lot there, but I think we can do more looking at trending and seeing those early uh, processes for maybe a health profile or a diagnosis, I think can be done earlier. There's lots. I mean, we were talking about this 10 years ago, but I think it's come a long way is around, you know, when we just do open dialogue in our documentation, as opposed to coded documentation Artificial intelligence can go in there and through optical reading can pick out those things that might see a trend in a client that maybe that we as a human cannot see. And I think we could get a little farther along in that. Those are kind of the three areas I was thinking about when we were talking about it the other day. Yeah, those are great examples. And I know Meditech is doing quite a bit of work in the genomic space. We've heard about that at least in the past two or three you know, Muse keynotes when either Helen or Hoda or someone has spoke about that. They've mentioned genetics and, and genomics rather and, and where they're at with that. And I think they're, they're continuing to move that forward. That's very interesting. We're heading in such a really cool direction right now. It's I kind of regret that I'm at the end of my career. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you've, you've said that once already. So you're my back. Friends sit knows, there right? telling me that I suck at <laughs> retirement. So. Yeah, that's right. And with, with all this technology, you know, maybe you can sit at home and monitor a whole room of people and, and you know who knows it's exciting times for sure and like you said the, the pandemic as negative as as it has been it has pushed technology the curve of technology and the acceptance of technology not only from physicians and end users and that sort of thing but in the states at least 
from the billing standpoint. So you can get reimbursed for some of these services that we prove that they can work and, and remote monitoring and some of those things that preventable medicine and that sort of thing. So yeah. It's exciting times. Well, Corey, you've given us a lot of interesting information in today's podcast. I always like to end on a personal note. And for those that remember a few years ago when you were chair, you blessed the the opening ceremony with some bagpipe music, which is pretty unique uh, to hear at a IT conference for sure. And we were talking the other day and you kind of shared how our COVID has changed your ability to get together and practice and that sort of thing. So talk, talk to us about that. That's pretty interesting. Yeah. So I belong to the Delta Police Pipe Band and we're a group of 50, 50 members in the band. And when COVID hit, of course, we couldn't meet to have band practice and we couldn't do any, you know, events, parades, they were all canceled. So We were trying to figure out ways that we could keep the band engaged because we didn't know how long it would be. So within a month or so, we decided to try online Zoom practices, which it was interesting at first. First, we just kind of met. Everybody just kind of had their drink at home and and we met just just to see because you you can think you've got 20 people, anywhere from 20, 30 people on a Zoom call. And how are you going to do that when they all have instruments in their hands? So We were able to figure it out. What we did was we gave different tunes to different people to play, kind of lead, and then they would be the only one and everybody else would be on mute and then they would play along at home. So that kind of gave everybody kind of a turn at bat as far as being the one that would play whatever piece of music we were working on. But the other thing we did, Delta Police Pipe Band is a very goal-centered type band. So what we did was we had to cancel our Robbie Burns dinner. So what we did was we did a virtual Burns dinner. And it was videotaped. So everybody kind of videotaped their segment. And then we had a master. We have a very talented person in the band named Jonesy Wu. So Jonesy put together, he put all the video and the recordings together for us. So that was kind of one thing we did. And that was very successful. So then we went on and we did three or four other recordings through the year. For St. Patrick's Day, we did the Game of Thrones theme on bagpipes. Which turned out quite well. Yeah, it's a bit different. It's a bit long, but it it came out really, really well. And that was super different for us because we were playing more of an orchestral piece on bagpipes. But I think we pulled it off. And then that was all interesting because we created click tracks that each one of us had to play to. So I'm playing pipes, but I got this click track in my head and then recording it all. So yeah, it was a lot of fun. We, We did a couple of them. We did one for Mother's Day. We did Highland Cathedral and we did another one. Oh, last year was our 50th anniversary. Unfortunately, not unfortunately, fortunately, it was our 50th anniversary. But the unfortunate part was we weren't able to do any celebrations for it. So again, we did a video of a tune called 50 by one, which was written specifically for our 50th anniversary. So it was interesting. Yeah, it was, yeah, a, it was a fun year. But now we're able to meet together again. And yeah, we've been able to do a couple okay. of small events. So it, it's nice to be able to see everybody in person again. Yeah, that's cool. Necessity is the mother of invention. So you guys found a way to still get together and still share your gifts with everyone. And we have some YouTube videos of that that I'll put in the show notes so that the Muse community can enjoy those as well and get to enjoy that. that yeah, I think the Game of Thrones cool. one is the most pretty fun. <laughs> Island Cathedral yeah. was interesting because yeah, so sure. we did that with the New West Orchestra and the New Westminster Choir. They're singing and stuff in that one as well. Yeah. Yeah. It was a learning curve there because adapting bagpipes to orchestra and that sort of thing. So it was a fun year. Yeah. That's great. Thanks for sharing that. Well, Corey, thanks so much for your time today. And thank you for your service to Muse over these many years. And thank you on behalf of the the Fraser community and the BC community of all the vaccinations that you helped and and get through. And I'm sure they're all thankful that you came out of retirement to help with that. and I wish you the best of luck through the rest of this pandemic and, and everything forward. Thank you very much, TJ. 
Thanks for listening to Muse Views. Don't forget to rate and follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcast fix. And visit museweb.org to join the podcast forum and for information about Muse. Thank you.